Happy Antibiotic Awareness Week, everybody. My name is Jason Pogue. I'm a clinical professor at the University of Michigan College of Pharmacy. On behalf of the Society of Infectious Diseases Pharmacists, I would like to welcome you to a special bonus Antibiotics Awareness Week podcast, really focusing on the five ways that all hospital pharmacists can be antibiotics aware. I am pleased to be joined here today by my good friend and colleague, Dr. Susan Davis, who has been instrumental in leading this campaign for pharmacist-led actions for stewardship. So Susan, would you please say hi to our millions of audience members at home and briefly introduce yourself. Hi, everybody. I am very excited to be here. Thank you, Jason, for that exaggerated introduction. <laughs> um, this is, this is going to be fun. I uh, feel like we've known each other for, what, nearly 15 years now. And, uh, yeah, God, yeah, <laughs> um, I think there's, there's a lot of good work being done, and I'm excited about what SIDP is doing with this campaign. So it's very cool. Thank you. No, thank you, and thanks for agreeing to ramble along with me. It's always fun. Now a lot of other people get to hear what we do all the time, right? Yes, this, in this gorgeous day from the downtown Detroit offices <laughs> at Wayne State, it's dreary, and we can talk about pharmacy and antibiotics. There we go. And so as I talked about earlier, we're here today to really talk about the joint campaign from the CDC, SIDP, and ASHP really on the five ways that all pharmacists can help optimize antimicrobial therapy and be antibiotics aware. And so Susan, the reason that I really wanted to have this conversation with you is not just because you're my friend, although that's part of it, but you were one of the main drivers behind this crusade. So I was hopeful that you could start us off by telling the audience a little bit about, you know, what's the backdrop of this campaign? I'd love to. Uh, this really was an invitation from the CDC for us to participate in a larger antibiotic awareness campaign. Our, our colleague Melinda Neuhauser works with the agency and they were looking for opportunities in keeping with the general theme of antibiotic awareness to spread that word through some other resources. And as infectious disease pharmacists, you and I in our hospitals, we don't see every patient, but a pharmacist does. And so this allows pharmacists and hospitals to kind of elevate the word of appropriate antibiotic use. So the goals are really to use pharmacists who are everywhere in hospitals uh, who may not necessarily identify as stewards or as ID experts. They're the medication experts and they're taking care of their patients. It gives some tools, some suggestions, and hopefully some inspiration of how every pharmacist can be doing more for appropriate antibiotic use. Yeah, that's awesome. And, and I obviously completely agree with that. Uh, stewardship and antibiotic optimization, for it to be successful, right, it's got to go well beyond us. I think your point is well taken that we do not see every patient. Um, but as a profession, um, and obviously we're very biased, uh, but we do feel that pharmacists are perfectly positioned to lead these efforts and better serve our patients. And so with that as kind of the backdrop for our audience, let's jump in to the five ways. The first one that comes up is by verifying penicillin allergy, right? This wouldn't be a pharmacy-based talk or a stewardship-based talk if we didn't talk about pen allergy. It's a, certainly a hot topic. And before we get into this, Susan, I think that there's a couple things that I want to do to set the stage before we do so. The first thing is I want to briefly talk to our audience about why we care. Right? Any of these things that we are going to be asking pharmacists or really any healthcare practitioner to take care of, they got to believe in it, right? So I think we do need to say why we care. And then the second thing is there are a lot of interventions that are out there surrounding penicillin allergy, 
right? And so I think we have to be crystal clear about what we're talking about here. So let's enter the Jason Rambles for a few minutes moment of this podcast here today. First off, I think it's important for everyone who's listening to this, anyone who's considering taking these interventions to really appreciate the fact that patients who have penicillin allergies, whether they're accurate or not, and again, that's where the intervention comes into play, are more likely to get second line therapy, right? We can agree with that. Whether that be vancomycin, fluoroquinolones, estreonem, clindamycin, pick your favorite non-beta-lactam, right? They're more likely to get that. And depending on the indication, that might be more or less of a problem. <laughs> That's a very good point. And it, there are certainly levels of inappropriateness that come from that. And, and I think it's important to appreciate that the reason we care about this, the primary reason is that this use of second line therapies, they're second line for a reason, right, Susan? And they're really associated with increases in clinical failure, which in things like MSSA bacteremia can actually mean death. They're associated with a higher incidence of adverse events, C. diff. And, and I think some of the coolest data or probably most influential to me data in this space around things like surgical site infections, right? You know, people think one dose, eh, what's the big deal? You're going to be fine. But using these second line therapies actually lead to an increase in surgical site infections. And so the bottom line and the reason that I wanted to take a few seconds to focus on this is that, you know, beta-lactams are first line for a reason. Uh, we're drug therapy experts as pharmacists. We want to put our patients on the appropriate therapy. And so this is worthwhile to really use our resources. And so that was my first diatribe. My second is, is I want to talk about what we are speaking of here, because as I kind of alluded to before, you know, there are a lot of interventions around penicillin allergy that are out there. And, and I don't want to give the impression that we're only talking about things like direct oral challenge of amoxicillin or penicillin skin testing. Again, I encourage all pharmacists to be involved in those programs at their institutions, but really all we're talking about here is simple med rec type stuff, allergy reconciliation. So with me rambling for a solid five minutes there, Susan, I'm going to shift gears to you and, and I want you to, to talk a little bit to me uh, I know that at Henry Ford, uh, floor-based pharmacists have a huge role in these types of things, a huge role in allergy assessment and stewardship in general. And so can you talk to me a little bit about what the pharmacists at your institution do to, to assess allergies? For sure. And we do have a mostly decentralized model at my hospital. And so for those who are not pharmacists and might be listening to this, <laughs> that means our pharmacists are not all in central pharmacy areas. They're Wait, not, what? Well, yeah, we're not all in the basement. Uh, Blasphemy. Not, not, not all at the computers during or, order verification and dispensing. Pharmacists do that at the bedside and they're on rounding teams, collaborative teams. That's pretty much the approach at all of the hospitals in our health system with varying degree. So we have academic and community models. And I think that's one of the things that's important when you're thinking about how do you want your pharmacists intervening on allergy is what works for the model. If your pharmacists do have to be doing a lot more order verification, that might be more basic interventions like I'm seeing a penicillin allergy flag, look for the history of exposure to a cephalosporin, make a quick call and try to get it changed. Uh, that does a lot, a lot to improve <laughs> care. Um, and so that's a basic intervention that literally every pharmacist in hospitals could be doing. 
if you have additional resources, like if you do have more of those decentralized pharmacists that we do in, in our hospital and many others, there's a lot more that can be done by patient interviews. There's more kind of intermediate steps uh, without going to the point of pharmacists doing the testing. Pharmacists can be screening, they can be doing interviews to say, have you had these exposures? When was it? What was the reaction? And then making more of those changes to the medical record to delabel. So there's the basic intervention of changing a specific antibiotic order for an individual patient. If you're not changing the label in the medical record that reflags them as penicillin allergic, well, it's just going to happen again. So taking that a step further, there's potentially some barriers to changing the label. Uh, so a, a pharmacist has to have permission to make that change in the medical record. And you've got to work with leadership and, and work with people to make sure you're able to do that. Is that some of your experience too, Jason? Yeah, very similar. And I'm curious of, you know, I think that's where a lot of people might run into issues. So if you've successfully done that at Henry Ford, how are you able to, you know, get it so that pharmacists were allowed to do so? I think we'd love to say we take it for granted that <laughs> pharmacists are clinicians participating in care, uh, and therefore, why wouldn't we be making changes appropriately to documentation? But that isn't something that we can always take for granted. So I think a lot of that goes with having the right allies and the right evidence. So using data that says penicillin allergies cause problems, penicillin allergies lead to second-line therapy, just like you said, that first identifying that it's a problem, but then also having allies in both physician and nursing leadership to advocate for pharmacists to be able to do that. Have those stakeholders there to say, you know, we support our people doing this. We give this delegated authority and a policy to back up being able to do it. Uh, now, I'm the type of person who would rather just ask forgiveness than permission, but that's, <laughs> that's not really the right way uh, that most pharmacy leaders would go about it. Yeah, and I think one thing that I would highlight is that uh, what Susan described there, I think, is is very consistent with literature, too. And so if you're inspired that this is something that you think the pharmacy model could advance to you as a pharmacist or you as working with your pharmacist can do, there's a really nice publication that just recently came out that I would encourage uh, the audience to take a look at. It is by Tanya Duplessis and colleagues. That's P-L-E-S-S-I-S. Yes, Susan, I took notes. Um, it was in JAC uh, just five months ago in May. And what's really cool about this, so this was some New Zealand, this was a New Zealand group. And so what they did was a pharmacist-led uh, antibiotic allergy intervention. It was actually kind of a three-part, it's a really cool publication. I would encourage you to take a look. Um, but it was a kind of a three-part thing where first there was exactly what you talked about, allergy reconciliation. Did they get a cephalosporin in the past? talk to the patient, right? It's an amazing concept. Shocking. Yeah, shocking. Have to do that? Yeah, believe it or not, they will listen to pharmacists too. So talking to the patient, that was kind of the first level. And then there was a second and third level with a oral challenge and potentially referring them to an allergy clinic. But again, let's forget those second two for, for a little bit here. Because I think really the, the gravity that this intervention could have, if you really want to impact the care of patients, they did this intervention for one month, one month, Susan, and 250 patients, it was 11% of the entire admissions to their hospital had a flagged penicillin allergy, 11% of patients. And 
what I would highlight is that, so they had this structured process for the interview. And just by doing that interview, they were able to delabel 64% of patients, 164 patients. So again, for those math majors who are listening to us, if you took 160 times 12, that's about 2,000 patients a year. Think about the impact that that can have on, it's, it's amazing. Massive. Yeah, it's huge. And that's why I think it's a, it's a really worthy thing to do. But what they found in the study was just amazing that just doing this, just as you kind of alluded to, Susan, and just looking to see if they had tolerated a penicillin or a cephalospore in the past, 110 of the patients had that. Uh, asking them what the adverse event was, it was headache or nausea in 80 patients. And really, more of those patients had both of those two things. And so pretty simple, hugely impactful intervention. And patient counseling about what to expect when you take an antibiotic, that that, that can happen. Yeah, and even talking to them about what an allergy is, Great right? So this goes moving forward. I, I agreed. I think it's a huge opportunity for our profession. And so I think it's a very worthy and noble first way that we can be antibiotics aware. But you did also say, I know you said you want to avoid, but um, there are those more advanced strategies. And I think that's something to aspire to if we have the resources. Yeah. I know we've got a lot of colleagues who get really excited about penicillin skin yes, testing do. and oral challenges. Um, our colleagues in Northern Michigan at Munson mm -hmm. are, are doing some really cool things. I think it's a great opportunity to get pharmacists at the bedside, taking care of patients, doing something that gets them really out there and, and visible. Uh, but it takes a lot of additional resources. So um, I know we haven't chosen to do that at my hospital. The intervention we've done is more uh, patient interviews for those that are coming in for elective surgery, that pre-surgery optimization clinic where there's a dedicated reason we know they're likely to get just vancomycin, <laughs> which is associated with worse outcomes. Right. So that's a known thing, a known problem, and kind of a captive audience of people who have to come in for optimization prior to procedures anyway. That's useful within the scope of resources we can dedicate, but there's a lot more advanced things that some cool people are doing. Um, I, I don't know what your thoughts are about no, that. No, and I, I think that it's you're perfectly right. Uh, it's tailoring the intervention to your resources, and I think mm -hmm. that you led off with that. I think regardless of which of these options you choose and which one makes sense because of the personnel you have and the opportunities that you have, I think the key thing is, is you're talking about saving lives, right? I mean, it's, end, yes. it's really as simple as that. I mean, it's a relatively simple intervention that saves lives. Um, and so I, I think that, that you should run with it and, and it's, it's a great opportunity. We could sit here and talk about penicillin allergy all day. Again, there's actually a podcast from SIUP that does just that. So if you want to learn more about penicillin skin testing and intervention that can be made, I encourage you to take it, listen to the itch. Susan, I don't use smiling at me, Susan, but you're, I'm not just saying that because I moderate it, although that is a very redeeming quality of the itch. But I get to talk it's to useful. a lot of really smart people. Uh, Bruce Jones, Julie Justo, and Mary Staiku just really rocket with with uh, information about what they've done, lessons learned, very valuable. And so I would encourage any pharmacist to take a listen and look at the impact that we can be making for patients. But like I said, there's five things that we need to talk about. People are probably already tired of listening to me. Yep. So I'm going to move this along. The second thing that comes up on our list for ways that antibiotics can, can impact patient care and be antibiotics aware is by assessing and potentially removing redundant anaerobic antimicrobials. So Susan, 
do me a solid and tell our audience exactly what do we mean by that? Well, uh, <laughs> it's, it's not unusual that you see a, a group of antibiotic orders come across where someone might be on fibrisol and tazobactam and metronidazole. So maybe there's a reason and maybe there's not. Uh, we've got duplicate anaerobic coverage. We've got two different agents that are providing quite a wide range of anaerobic spectrum of activity there. And unless there's an indication for each one of those individually, perhaps one is unnecessary. <laughs> perhaps. But so before we get there, can you talk a little bit about some, so for pharmacists who are seeing both of those orders, they're going to need to investigate what's going on. What would be some potential scenarios where a double anaerobic coverage makes sense? Well, that's probably its own podcast about the controversies. <laughs> um, maybe that's an idea for the future. But there are some situations where the addition of, per se, like clindamycin has some, it's not about the spectrum of activity, but we're using that for its mechanism in toxin uh, antagonism. Uh, so perhaps in something like necrotizing fasciitis or other toxin producing infections, the addition of a second agent is giving some additional benefit. Uh, there are also the, the need to cover for Clostridium difficile while also treating an underlying infection. So if metronidazole <laughs> is part of your C. diff cocktail, it's got its own indication. There are definitely reasons for it. I don't think that's the majority of what's seen in a lot of hospitals. Right. So um, quite a few pharmacy systems will use an alert for duplicate anaerobic activity and somebody's got to go double check the indications and, and see if one of them could be discontinued. Yeah, and I think that the, the teaching lesson is always is that your, you know, your, your broad spectrum penicillins or carbapenems, so things like Piptazo, Ampsobactam, the carbapenems, have phenomenal anaerobic activity on there and a lot of times better than metronidazole in many cases. In and a s lot of cases. So it's important that, and I, I find that, again, there is a knowledge, and I'm not talking about a pharmacist, they're just a general clinician knowledge deficit there sometimes. So it's another opportunity to educate, improve the management moving forward. But all right, Susan, I'm going to play the grumpster here for a second. Oh, and, no. and, and I'm going to play the recalcitrant clinician who doesn't like this idea. So what would you say to the pharmacist or physician that says, but it's only metronidazole? You know, I've, it's metronidazole. It's Come on. Cheap. What Whatever. is the big deal? It's oral. You yeah. know, why do I got to deal with that? I don't want to take the time to inquire about this. I, I don't know the data for carbapenems covering anaerobes, so I'd feel a lot better. I learned in pharmacy or med or whatever school that I needed metronidazole for anaerobic coverage. So motivate me as that pain-in-the-butt clinician that this is something that is worthwhile? Well, I think the message always goes back to antibiotic overuse has significant downsides. Some of that is an impact on resistance, microbiome, and collateral damage that additional clindamycin and metronidazole could be selecting for enterococcus or other gut opportunistic pathogens that could then cause more problems, but antibiotics themselves have their own adverse effects. So we have Metronidazole is not benign. If you've taken it, it tastes like crap for one thing. Uh, but That's what I do on Friday nights. Sure. We had to do that during a compounding rotation, and I've been scarred for life. <laughs> I had to taste it. Um, so I think there's, there's the GI upset that comes with it. There's also, with some prolonged exposures, odd toxicities, neuropathies. Mm -hmm. um, and, and don't forget drug interactions. People on anticoagulants, that's a pretty big problem. So it's not benign. If it's not meeting a need, it doesn't belong. Yeah, and I think that that's a great point. You bring up the neuropathies because if you think back to the old days of two years ago when we used metronidazole for C. diff routinely, 
you know, even if you looked at the guidelines, it would talk about repeated courses leading to a cumulative exposure of, of neurotoxicity, Absolutely. right? And neuropathy. And so I think that one unnecessary three days might set them up down the road for something bad. So I think that's a good point. And I think we won't belabor the double anaerobic question any longer. I think that pharmacists, when it comes to metronidazole for a patient who's already on Peptazo, this is a, a relatively easy and it really is a worthwhile intervention for the reasons that Susan just said. So. And it's a good opportunity to re-educate on the spectrum, not just the spectrum of, of activity of the different anaerobic agents, but also the spectrum of organisms you expect with different types of infections. And look to the new CAC guidelines of maybe we don't need a whole lot of anaerobic Oh, nice. Nice so to tie that's in. out there. All right, Susan, with that, let's move on to area number three. So when I take a look at this poster that's sitting in front of me, it says that the third way that pharmacists can be antibiotics aware is to quote unquote, reassess antibiotic therapy. Now that sounds a little vague to me, so I was hopeful that you could tell me in our audience, what exactly are we talking about here and where might it fit into the day of a clinical pharmacist? Well, it is sufficiently vague to give you a lot of different ways you could apply it. To give you some backstory on where that came from, it actually did evolve as, as the group talked about what, what is this best defined way to intervene. Uh, so it started with a 48 to 72 hour timeout. But as you may be aware, gathering data on timeout suggests that that alone might not be enough. Right. That a, a timeout after 48 to 72 hours of antibiotic therapy in the absence of other stewardship strategies probably isn't going to make a whole lot of difference, but that in addition to prior authorization, formulary, and having an active stewardship presence, that can make a difference. So to say reassess antibiotic therapy is a, a useful way of looking at this in, in multiple opportunities without that specific time frame. It also evolved from focusing specifically on an individual drug to just saying reassess antibiotic therapy. <laughs> and in part that's because not everybody has the same antibiotic problems. But if you had to guess the target that this started with, Ooh, call on me, call on me. Yeah. I think the answer is probably the great vancomycin. Of course, <laughs> So that is one of the biggest opportunities that most pharmacists are already right. involved in dosing. If you'd like to to plug your educational programs on a, AUC based dosing, but I would never do yeah. such a thing. But hey, <laughs> I hear SIDPEC is a pretty good website for that type of goodness. Yes. So we're already there. Right. We're already helping with the dosing. Why not take that opportunity to reassess the need and say, hey, before I redose this, before I, I evaluate these yeah. levels, let me evaluate a patient and the indication. Well, Not you, I, I have to jump in there because I think, I think that obviously uh, this is something that comes up a lot as we educate on AUC-based dosing, right, is that people don't want to do all that stuff, right? And the best way to not have to do AUC-based dosing is stopping unnecessary vancomycin. And so I think that, I think to your point, any time that you're assessing vanco dosing is a great time to assess vanco need, right? And you know what? While you're looking at the vanco, take a look at the piptaza that's look there as well. The Let's take a look yes. at those two. So how do your pharmacists at uh, Henry Ford kind of work this into their day? I think our, our pharmacists at my hospital, much like others, work this into the day-to-day -day activities. And so there's a couple different ways of implementing an alert-based system can be useful. So if you have 
electronic medical records that flag this patient's been on vancomycin or this patient's been on antibiotics for X number of days, you can use that to flag, oh, I should probably go zero in on this a little bit more. And to some degree, we use that. Uh, but the pharmacists who are rounding at the bedside are, are already doing this daily. Uh, some of our units have pilot programs where they do a formal timeout. Others, this is a conversation at collaborative rounds on patients several days into therapy. So it gets modified by the unit and that pharmacist's relationship with their team. Uh, there's other ways of doing this more based on microbiology. Mm -hmm. So when micro results come back and you have something to react to, who's that getting reported to? Are your critical microbiology results going to a pharmacist to review? If they're going to a stewardship team to review, does that then get communicated to whoever's doing that handshake at the bedside? Uh, so you've got to have all those different steps in implementation. Yeah, and I think that that's a great point. And that's kind of where we, when I was at the DMC, that was pretty much how we would kind of do that. One was the the bedside pharmacist was, the, I certainly was not the bedside pharmacist as the steward for the hospital. And so close communication with them on microbiology as it comes back was critical because they knew those practitioners, they knew those teams better than I did, right? And so they were the right people to make that intervention. But as I alluded to before is that, you know, pharmacists are dosing antibiotics in those patients already. And there is a great opportunity to reassess that therapy and really that that's the perfect probe you know right because even if you got concentrations that time that you probably got it if it's quote unquote steady state right is right around that time frame that micro should be starting to roll back in on that patient and so i think that it's critical i think that the pharmacist is is perfectly positioned to do that because this is drug therapy optimization again this is what we do as a profession. So what would you say, Susan, to the pushback, right? So the pushback of, boy, that can be a painful intervention to do. The de-escalation intervention is, is calling blindly and recommending to stop therapy is, I don't enjoy that. Well, what would you say to that? I think that's hard, that calling blindly. I agree that then if you do not have relationships with those physicians, if, if it's people that work odd schedules or are not always practicing in your hospital, it can be extremely difficult, but you definitely have the evidence on your side. Particularly with vancomycin, we know that discontinuing unnecessary vancomycin improves outcome. Additional vanco is associated with acute kidney injury. Each additional day is additional risk. Uh, so I think that has to be part of not only your motivation to yep. intervene on it, but part of your communication as a reminder that this, this could be doing more harm than good. Yeah, and I think that that's everything, Susan. So that's what I, that is my exact response to that question is, this is a drug therapy that's not optimized and there is, they're not, it's not benign to give these patients these agents for a cumulative period of time. And so just to give our audience a little bit of oomph or a little bit of, of strength behind, I'm going to give you three publications that I particularly like. I would encourage you to one, take a look at these, but these can be the types of things I think that can be very helpful to make these interventions. And so the first one I'll encourage you to take a look at is by Cowley. C-O-W-L-E-Y and colleagues. This was published in CHEST actually in 2019. And this is kind of exactly what you were talking about, Susan. So what this study did was this looked at patients who had negative respiratory cultures and looked at the impact on outcomes of whether or not they stopped MRSA coverage or they didn't stop MRSA coverage. So again, the basic thing that we're talking about right here, because something that you might get back, right, Susan, from your clinician is that they're getting better. 
and I don't want to stop an antibiotic because they're getting better. And so the study, I think, is very valuable here because what it showed was that de-escalation of that or discontinuation, actually, of that, of that MRSA coverage did not impact mortality in any way. Uh, patients had five days fewer of MRSA therapy when they got it stopped appropriately early. This led to a decrease in AKI and in particular more severe forms of AKI. But what's really interesting is that it also looked like it, it facilitated some other positive outcomes for the patients. They saw decreases in length of stay and ICU length of stay. So it's a really nice reference showing that this isn't harmful and perhaps is beneficial as well. Two other ones that I feel compelled to talk about. Uh, one comes from the DMC, so a plug for Detroit, where we're, we are recording this on this extremely dreary day. I'm looking out Susan's window right now, and I can see maybe half of the buildings through the fog, but one of the more interesting and evolving areas in ID is this Bank Piptazo Acute Kidney Injury Association. It is very real. Sorry, Mark, but it's very real. But it's, it's certainly a target that we go for in trying to limit in different ways. And when we looked at this at the DMC, this publication is by uh, Carino and colleagues in 2016 in AAC. What was interesting is what the authors found in that was that the highest incidence was on day four or five of combination therapy. And Susan, no one should be on combination therapy for four or five days, right? You should be de-escalating. So another opportunity to decrease the bad. Again, that's what we wanna do as pharmacists. And then the other thing that Susan brought up that I think is, is a really important thing to remember is that it's true that every day matters. And there's a really nice publication in pharmacotherapy from this year um, by Tashomi and colleagues. This is the, the St. Louis group. I love this paper. Everyone loves this paper, right? Because they, they looked at it really robustly. And basically what they wanted to do in this study is they wanted to see what was the cumulative impact of each additional day of anti-pseudomonal beta-lactam therapy on the development of resistant organisms to that beta-lactam. And essentially what they showed was after controlling for all kinds of things in that study, each additional day of anti-pseudomonal beta-lactam therapy increased the chance of developing a resistant pathogen 4%. And what's actually really interesting about that study is that the highest incidence at 8% was either cefepime or piptazo. So the two your patients are most likely to be in. And so this kind of dispels that counterpoint of it's just one more day, or I don't want to make this intervention, that this is really, really beneficial. Our patients deserve this type of intervention. What also makes some thoughts about the implementation of this, it yeah. can be very difficult if all you're doing is looking at <laughs> microbiology results, because so many of those patients who are on Banco and Cefepime or Banco and Piptazo never get microbiology sure. results. Uh, so using some type of time-based alert of your patients been on this combination, using that 48 to 72 hour timeout is useful. However, one thing that we did was uh, start communicating commensal respiratory flora in our pneumonia patients a little bit more effectively to say that the negative is there. So instead of just saying commensal respiratory flora and then physicians not understanding exactly what that means in the microbiology lab, we had a nice show and tell of there's no staph, <laughs> there's no pseudomonas. If you look at the plate, it's not there. And we changed the communication in our microbiology lab to specifically say these organisms aren't present. And that really started flagging the de-escalation as soon as this kind of vague yeah. microbiology result came back. So there are some things that you can be doing 
that nudge it a little bit more strong. Yes, Susan, I yeah. love that publication. I will tell you that it, it inspired us uh, right across town here in Detroit to try to implement a similar thing. I would encourage people to take a look at that. They were able to show a really nice decrease in Vanco and anti-pseudomonal beta-lactam use. So again, things to empower you to be more successful in those types of interventions. Need the tools. Need the tools, but it's something that every pharmacist can do. And For we would sure. really encourage you because again, I'm like the stewardship team is not gonna see all these patients. So it's the perfect opportunity to really do what our profession's meant to, right? So with that, speaking of limiting unnecessary antibiotic use, right? Let's talk about action item number four. This is probably one of the more popular interventions in the ID pharmacology or ID treatment world, and that's pharmacists helping to avoid with the treatment of asymptomatic bacteria. Now, at this point in time, I think you'd have to be living under a rock to not know that we do not need to treat this in almost every patient population. There are targets. Yet it still happens. <laughs> Tell me how you really feel, Susan. <laughs> And, and I think that like, and so again, I don't want to get into these data because we could derail for about an hour on it, but the harms of this are so well documented in literature. Like it's not as simple as it just doesn't help. It's that it leads to adverse events. It leads to C. diff. It leads to resistance. And one of my favorite ones, Susan, I think that the greatest one, because this is usually the pushback you get, right, is that people will say that they're going to prevent a UTI down the road. But it turns out that periodic asymptomatic colonization is actually protective against urinary tract infections. And so treating asymptomatic bacteria is actually associated with an increase in recurrent UTI down the road. And so, okay, we derailed a little bit, but that's okay. It's, it's an important thing because I think that, again, as we're trying to talk about why pharmacists should care about this, why practitioners should care, I mean, there's significant harm to this over treatment. And so, Susan, Let's say that everyone agrees that outside of pregnant patients or those who are undergoing neurological procedure, we don't want to do this. As a pharmacist, as a floor pharmacist, as a central pharmacist, how can, if I'm not routinely involved in day-to-day -day management of these patients, how can I help out in this measure? I think this is one of the areas that is a little bit more difficult if you're not already at the bedside because it is the presence of symptoms that becomes the thing you need to go investigate and it's not well. There's no, there's no category, there's no column in the electronic medical record that says, were there urinary symptoms present? Someone had to have documented that in a note and you gotta go search for it. Uh, so this does require a phone call or a, a walk down the, the hall to the patient's right. bedside, um, but well worth the effort. Uh, the other thing that's difficult that a lot of people see as a barrier is when those patients have mental status changes and a, a dirty UA, and the patient can't necessarily communicate yep. the nature of their symptoms. So I think one of those areas is where we need some criteria. You need criteria for when to do further testing. You need criteria for when uh, perhaps therapy would be reasonable in that situation. I think a lot of people are looking at the presence of leukocytosis. So is, the, is there a light count and mental status change? And okay, we're going to address hydration, we're going right. to address other medications, but if with those things present, even if they can't convey symptoms, you can be fairly permissive there. <laughs> if, if there's a white count, it's worth, worth more conversation okay. that's just simply stop treating all ASB. There, there is a line and you have to have that conversation. But in those people who have no other signs and symptoms, 
and are clearly communicating. They didn't have urinary urgency <laughs> or, or frequency. You mean your analysis doesn't show UTI like yeah. everyone's favorite notes is? Yeah. <laughs> um, I, I think we've still got a lot of education right. to do. Uh, and so if pharmacists are armed with that information, right. if we have have those criteria with us, we know the data, then that makes us, I think, a, a lot more effective in advocating for our mm -hmm. patients there. Uh, there are two people, I would say, are doing some really good work on this. The two that I, I like to follow on, on the Twitterverse, uh, Barbara Troutner is doing some just really cool things with ASB. And the other is Brad Langford. He's yeah. a, a pharmacist in Ontario, and they're such strong advocates for appropriate assessment of asymptomatic bacteriuria. Right. And I think that you brought up such a great point that, you know, once again, like everything we talked about, right, there's levels of all of this. And there are some patients that are nebulous, right, mm -hmm. that it's difficult. And there are certain other tests that need to be done. But there's still a large proportion of those patients that are the more straightforward mental status. Hydrate them. What's the rush? Do we, the patient isn't, doesn't have a sir, right? As if sirs were still a thing, but they don't have any of that. Like we can maybe just like, you know, give them some fluids and see how they respond at that point in time. So I think that there is an opportunity there. And what we did at, at, at the DMC and what we would always teach is that when you get that ED order for ceftriaxone, that should be a flag, right? That, that you know that that's probably, granted that's everybody in the ED, but I think that there's an opportunity to investigate a little bit more in that situation if you have it tied to an antibiotic indication, right? So a lot of EMRs now have that, ceftriaxone plus UTI, certainly something that warrants a little bit more investigation, particularly when the, whatever you're seeing so far, they're rock solid stable. I think, especially in the ED, but throughout the hospital, we've got to be partnering with nurses and with infection preventionists. This yeah. is very much on their radar. And so if you've got a relationship with the nurses on your unit and, and have that message together that, hey, let's not do all this testing. And when we do, let's not immediately react to this. <laughs> you know, we can be a, a very phenomenal team with our nursing partners. Here, 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 here. So yeah, so thank you for that. And, and I think it's, again, I like to bring it back to the literature and things to arm you. And so one thing that I would highlight is that in addition to all of the bad that's out there, that if you treat asymptomatic bacteria, bad stuff happens. I think it's also important to look to the literature for success stories. And what I mean by that is that you'd also like to be able to arm yourself with facts that there are institutions that have targeted this, right? They've addressed it and it didn't negatively impact the patient. And so I think that one reference that I would bring to your attention, this is by Kelly and colleagues, it's K-E-L-L-E-Y. This is an itchy in 2014 in February. And this was a hospital in Florida, and they did a huge massive campaign around asymptomatic bacteria. They did a pre-post then on how that impacted antibiotic use. Not surprisingly, it significantly decreased antibiotic use, but what they also nicely showed is that there was no negative outcome for the patients, right? And so that's always the concern is what if I'm missing the one patient that actually has it, and these data do not, do not appear to show that as a thing. So I think that that's important to know that there are data out there to support you. You just have to arm yourself with it. So with that, since it's sad, I'm going to bring us to our last one, number 505. But it's my favorite one. It's your favorite one now. So I bet the audience is on the edge of their seat yes. of what it can be. And that's pharmacists ensuring that patients are treated for the shortest 
duration as possible. Again, it would be another pod for another day to go through the just buckets of data showing short course therapy to be effective for common disease states, right? Pneumonia, urinary tract infections, and, and really the impact that has, right? Like when we talked earlier about de-escalation and talked about what's bad about another day of antibiotics, what's, it all holds true here, right? And so what I wanna ask you is kind of a, a two-part question, Susan. So the first part is how can inpatient pharmacists work to limit excessive durations in that inpatient setting? Do you have any success stories from Henry Ford and, and what triggers their assessment? And boy, for part one, that was a lot of questions, right? Yes. So a three-part part one. So yeah, tell me a little bit about the inpatient setting. Well, I have to say this is probably one of our biggest success stories at my health Yay. system. It's, it's exciting. So for years, we had been complaining about not having a way to implement something to really enforce the shorter is better dogma. Uh, we had a ton of educational opportunities, continuing education for physicians, for physician assistants, nurse practitioners, for pharmacists. We, we've been harping on this for forever because as you said, there's there buckets of data <laughs> for most common indications that we didn't need to be using as long as we had been. So our first step was in developing institutional guidelines, applying all of those national guidelines and when guidelines didn't exist, summarizing the data and making it a health system wide, here's our recommended duration of therapy for each of these common indications and with some guidance on when those short courses are appropriate right. because they're not appropriate for everyone. It really is vital that it's someone who got the right therapy early, had an early response. You don't do these short courses in someone who's lingering symptoms mm -hmm. and, and continuing to have persistent infection. That's not the right selection. But even with those guidelines, it needed some enforcement. It needed some reminder <laughs> that things don't happen just because you have a guideline and educate on it. So we have implemented a process and I haven't published this yet, but it's coming soon, hopefully. Get excited, um, people. Yes. So in, in the past year, our health system has been working on a pharmacy-driven stewardship transition of care process. Okay. It puts the responsibility for facilitating discharge antibiotic orders in the hands of the pharmacist through collaborative discussion. Okay. So the idea being that we can identify patients who are likely to go home on oral antibiotics. We do that through the medical record and by being present. So we develop some tools that flag that. Uh, the pharmacist then can say, hey, this patient's doing okay. This is our institutional guideline for drug selection and duration. How about I queue that order up for you so it's ready when you're ready to discharge them? whatever the day that is, and I'm gonna put the right end date in it. And then our pharmacists write a note that order is there, so whoever is discharging them gets to select That's the awesome. pre-populated antibiotic order. It's right, it's the right drug, right dose, right duration. And uh, we rolled that out in a, a stepwise fashion across each of our hospitals. It has been immensely successful. We're still doing some data analysis, but some top line uh, results. We were getting about 30% on average before optimal therapy, before the intervention. With the intervention, we're at 80% are getting the right drug for the right duration on discharge. And when you think about all of the, the overuse of antibiotics, patients are in the hospital for a fairly short yep. period of time, at least in the US, and the, the bulk of unnecessary antibiotics is what they get in the outpatient setting. We know Valerie Vaughn, our, our friend from U of M, yep. uh, has been publishing on that from a Michigan statewide collaborative that 
nearly 90% of overuse of antibiotics, at least in pneumonia, is from discharge antibiotics. Uh, so we've got to be doing discharge stewardship, and that's probably the biggest area of opportunity to use the shortest duration possible. We're not going to change the duration in the hospital. They're going to be on it until right. discharge. You've got to fix the <laughs> discharge antibiotics. That's a great point. And you bring up the HMS data, which I think is so powerful too. This is another, another situation of what we talked about earlier, right? It's that every day matters. And so that publication that just came out in CID, what did they show was that for each additional unnecessary day in the outpatient setting, you increase the risk of patient-reported adverse event 5%, right? And so again, those days do matter. And I agree with you, Susan. First off, that's awesome. I'm excited. 30% to 80% is pretty freaking good. Right? Awesome. Like, that's amazing. But this, again, this is, I think, where stewardship programs might not be optimally equipped to deal with. I never looked at a discharge antibiotic, right? Because they weren't on my radar at that no, point. No, we, and we as the ID pharmacists or the stewardship pharmacists are rarely the ones that are doing all that transition of care already. Our pharmacy colleagues across the rest of the system might not just be the inpatient pharmacist. Right. It might be your meds to beds outpatient pharmacy that's doing that. Those are, those are the pharmacists who know what's going on at discharge. And if they're looking at the full medical record on all the chronic diseases and fixing up the follow-up for, for those indications, we can arm our, our pharmacy colleagues in other specialty areas that, hey, these are common antibiotic indications. Help us out. Yeah, that's super cool. I'm curious, how was it received by the pharmacy staff? Oh, it's good. It's been great. I think it's given a lot of feeling of accomplishment as we share that success. Awesome. And it, it made it easier to have a whole patient-wide conversation awesome. that we're not just focusing on one specific thing, but as the pharmacists are addressing the transition period, they're also addressing the infection. Fantastic. That was great. So thank you, Susan. Sure. That was fun. I hope you enjoyed it. I enjoyed it. It was great discussing the five ways that all pharmacists can be antibiotics aware. Just to recap, for those of you who might have forgotten some of the earlier conversation, penicillin allergy verification, duplicate anaerobic coverage, avoiding therapy of ASB or asymptomatic bacteria, reassessing antibiotic therapy, and then kind of an extension of that, which is the shortest effective duration of therapy. So before we let the audience go, so don't leave yet, but before we let the audience go, we would be remiss. Um, I think they'd kick us off of the SAP board if we did not discuss uh, next steps. So what can pharmacists who are listening to this do next to get involved with SIDP's commitment in this space? Well, I think the first thing is to go to the SIDP website and get the posters. Okay. Uh, the CDC has posted the, the posters available for PDF download at their website. It's a little difficult to find. I think the easiest way is to just go to SIDP. And that's that a completely, because I'm biased. A completely unbiased opinion, right? right? Yeah. Completely um, now, if you know exactly what you're searching for, you can, you can find it with your favorite <laughs> search engine. Or you could just go to sidp.org backslash AMR challenge because SIDP's commitment to this program has been part of our commitment to the U.S. government's antimicrobial resistance challenge that's been going on for nearly the past year. Uh, so SIDP has partnered with CDC and ASHP to make these posters available. On our website, we also have an activity guide for some ideas if you're trying to figure out how to use those posters. At my hospital, our, our ID pharmacists and pharmacy residents will be using one poster per day uh, during Antibiotic Awareness Week to talk to our pharmacists about things they can do. There's a lot of other opportunities, not just during Antibiotic Awareness Week, but could be used throughout the year. 
Yeah, and when you're there on the website, you get to sign our commitment list, right? It's growing. We're about at 100 people right now that have committed to really implementing pharmacy-led actions to improve the use of antimicrobials. So I think it's a, a cool thing to be a part of. We really encourage you, invite you to come check out that website and, and get involved with that campaign. That'd I mean, be fantastic. Like, like we said, it is for the betterment of our patients and it's what we do as pharmacists, right? Yeah, and signing up at, that you're making a commitment helps us elevate the visibility of pharmacists in general as part of the solution to antibiotic resistance. Perfect, I think that's a great place to leave it. So thank you for that and thank you for chatting with me today. Thanks for coming to my office. Yes, it's been a nice to come back to Detroit for another day. Again, it's just as lovely as I recall. And, and on behalf of SIDP, we really want to thank the audience for listening in, sticking around. We encourage everybody who is listening, pharmacists, other allied healthcare practitioners, to really look to integrate these five ways into your daily responsibilities. That's the best way to do it. Like I said, like we talked about earlier, there's some relatively low hanging fruit versions of these that, that anyone can implement. We would really encourage you to do so to improve the care of our patients. And so with that, till next time, this is SIDP Breakpoint signing off and uh, happy Antibiotic Awareness Week, everybody. 